Let me ask you a question. Okay, shoot. How many people have you killed in your lifetime? Including the war. Uh-huh. You lose count. Out of all those times, what, what, what did it feel like? Feel like? Jesus, you're beginning to sound like the prison shrink they send in here twice a week. So it was, it was always just a job to you? Yeah. During the war, after, always a job. Never felt one way or the other about it. Just got good at it. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Stephen King Retrospective. I told you, I don't welch. Listen in as Garrett. I'm a professional. I'm a professional. Matt. I'm not so good today. And Adam. I wish I was out of this. Continue their reviews of the popular author's film adaptations by beginning their look at the film versions of Stephen King's Night Shift. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We gotta watch it. Listen in, as contained in this set are reviews of The Night Shift Collection. Don't do me any favors. And Stephen King's Cat's Eye. We're about to change your life. And keep coming back, as the boys will keep gradually going, one by one, through King's film adaptations in publication order. You've gotta believe me! All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Are we going to get down to it or not? Cat's Eye, or Stephen King's Cat's Eye, released April 12, 1985. Budget on this was $7 million. Box office, $13.1 million. And this is directed by Louis Teague. Welcome back to the world of King, everybody. Stephen King, that is. It has been a long time, about a year since we discussed this. We did post in our relaunch the recording we did for Dr. Sleep, but this is the first time we have actually discussed Stephen King for the brand new site, and man, am I excited. Since we've had that discussion, I have gone on a shining adventure at the actual Stanley Hotel, and I recommend anybody who's any part of a King fan make that trip to Estes Park, Colorado, because it is amazing. I learned so much, and we'll discuss all of that as we get into this, but first let me reintroduce my colleagues. First, somebody who has gone through every journey of this new site with me, Mr. Matthew Goudreau. Matt, we have uh, withstood the Scorsese beatings that I took as we discussed those films, and we are back to discuss King. Are you ready, sir? I just love that you waited until after we did The Shining to go visit the hotel. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I thought of that, too. I told Jen when we went, I said, damn it, the timing of this could not be worse, but let's do this. And we are once again joined... After he was able to unleash the beatings, discussing Batman, and we got into some fights about those, as him being on the positive side, me being a little bit of a negatory. We are once again joined by Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you doing, sir? You know, I'm waiting for the King's Ransom that I was promised by bringing me back into this thing here. So <laughs> We have a 98% success rate in our uh, quitters. you're part of the two percent yeah let's not discuss uh how long it's going to take we're only about five minutes into a discussion of an anthology which is going to probably be and i'll I'll go ahead and spoil this probably be the best film that we discussed in this whole 20 plus film retrospective we're going to do of night shift oh boy night shift when i put stephen king on the slate and i discussed it with these boys the, the one part that i was actually dreading 
was this slew of Night Shift movies that we're going to discuss. Because the volume has about 20 short stories, and they all range between 8 to 15 pages each. A few of them a little bit longer, which we discussed last week. But these 20 or so stories have launched so many fucking movies. And as the fan, as the major Stephen King fan, who... If it wasn't for the fact that we were running this site, we had so many things going on here, I'd probably launch my own Stephen King site as that big of a fan. I was dreading going to these movies, because some of these movies, oh boy, I'm sorry guys, I'll just say that in advance. But the today's movie, Cat's Eye, let, let's discuss. So, Cat's Eye, we are doing these in the order that they were published. We are not doing them in order of release. We're going to, just, we're going to say that a hundred times as we go through this retrospective. Meaning, the movie that we're discussing today has come out in the midst of the first wave of major success that Stephen King had endured. Because Carrie had already been out. The Shining had already been out. Cujo would have been out with who we're also going to discuss today. He has had much success. And so this was a way of putting out a movie, of an anthology. Now, anthologies, Matt, let's discuss those. You, sir, I assume, as the big horror fan, are a big fan of anthologies. Yes, I am. For the record, I wanted to call this portion of the retrospective Steve Anthology King, but that is a pun that is so... <laughs> oh, my God. That is a pun that is so bad it belongs with some of the movies we're going to discuss later. But this one, I had never seen before. This was the first wow. time I've experience. Being is, it was very hard growing up slash up until streaming to find a physical copy of this. Largely mm-hmm. because it wasn't a novella of his. Two of these are based on stories in Night Shift. One is exclusive to the movie. But to be honest, what turned me off, because there is sort of a thing where I went out of my way to watch all the big ones, and there are going to be a few of these that are first-time viewings, but when I saw the poster, and I saw that little miniature Raincore-looking thing, <laughs> I, said, I said, this looks like, the, and there's a cat on it, this looks like Coke-fueled Stephen King unleashed. And with that in mind, despite some of that possibility being entertaining, I said, I'm not going to bust my ass to try to track this down because it's not like this is something that, for the most part, is held up with the utmost of reverence by the hardcore King fans. So I, I kind of wasn't going to go out of my way to track this down if I didn't have immediate access. And then when Garrett said, hey, we're going to do everything, which, much like Robert Sala, I'm keeping receipts. Gang Green Goodrow every Wednesday. Go ahead. <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> yep. I said, okay, we are going to do this. And thankfully, it was on Amazon. I paid for it for a rental, which translates to a dollar for every story because it's two ninety nine plus tax. And not to preview my thoughts too much, but I guess it was money well spent which we'll talk about later, but it's my purview on this anthology. So, much like the discussion we had last week, you had three dollar babies that you uh, paid for. Perspective. <laughs> Adam, as the non-King fan, sir, I, I trying to think, I don't think in the years that I've known you, I don't think we've ever discussed any of this movie. Uh, had you seen this going in? I've seen the poster with a oh. cat on it. <laughs> That's about my knowledge of cats on when I looked it up, or when we were first doing it, I'm like, oh, sweet, we get to discuss cat people. I love Natasha Kinski. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. And then I found this, what looks like a pretty damn cool anime series that ran two seasons. Nope, nope, that's not it. So then I finally found Cat's Eye, and I had no idea it was an anthology. If anything, that made me excited. When it comes to a horror, we'll discuss how much of this is actual horror when we get into it. But I think anthology and horror don't go together, or they're not seen together as often as they should be. 
because I think they're a perfect mix. I think every year in theaters we should be getting horror anthologies. So when I learned that this was going to be basically three stories here in one, it perked my hopes up. It, it got me a little more excited than most of these are going to for me going in. It's certainly more exciting than, and we discussed those stories last week, but those were very succinct. And when it comes to King, I think some of his best adaptations are those of the short story realm. I, I think the short story is a great way to adapt because you're not getting a long three, four hundred page novel, at least back then. Now we're into, you know, the eleven hundred page <laughs> realm when we get into well, it and those kinds of things in the stand. To me, you know, I have purchased and read one Stephen King book, if you want to put it that way. Not that I have anything against him per se, as much as this throughout the next 20 years of discussing King is going to show otherwise. But for me, it was when I bought the Green Mile, they were very short novella forms, mm-hmm. you know, and as a way that, that that's how he released that uh-huh. book series. I remember. Um, and I thought that was a great way to do it, and that's how I bought that book. So just the thought of something short and succinct and bite-sized definitely was something that played on my sensibilities. So the popular king at this point, we already had Cujo, we had Christine, which we're going to see, as I mentioned, we're going to see both of them by the end of this movie. But he'd also had Firestarter, and Firestarter starred one of my favorite actresses from back then, and even today I, I enjoy not necessarily her TV show, but I enjoy a lot of things that Drew Barrymore has represented over the years as far as Hollywood goes. And here she is, front and center, right before her first Real big downfall, I would say. And she was in Firestarter. And Dino De Laurentiis, producer of this, another person we're going to be discussing a lot as we get deeper into the King realm from the 80s, he took a real liking to Drew. And after Firestarter, he went to King and he said, write something for her. And this was what he came out with. Now, this is advertised. This is how funny trailer people were back in the 80s. It was advertised as the first screenplay by Stephen King, and big aficionados know, and we'll discuss this movie later, but he had already written Creepshow by this point, so he already got that wrong when uh, it, it came to this movie. And Creepshow, oh man, I have so many things to say about that movie once we get to it. But this is what King came out with. There are two short stories here which are taken directly from Night Shift, and there is uh, one that is original, as Matt said, written particularly for this movie. Now, Matt, you read the short stories of this. You said you'd never read these before? Nope. I didn't even own a copy of Night Shift until last week. Thank you, Amazon, for the very quick purchase and delivery. And I was shocked when I opened my copy of the box, and I found a book that was of decent size that I can't bludgeon someone to death with. Like, 50% of Stephen King's bibliography. And the Night Shift, as we discussed last week, it has a hand on the cover, the one I had anyway, not the one you can get now, but it had a picture of a hand on the cover with a bunch of eyes on it. And so I read that from cover to cover a lot when I was younger. And so this was a big part of what really got me into King. All right, we discussed all the origins of that book last week. We're going to discuss this movie, but what's funny about this movie, and Matt, or one of you guys said, this kind of looks like King in the height of his cocaine years. So King spent a lot of time on the set while they were making this movie. Reason being, he was studying the direction of Louis Teague. Why was he studying the direction of Louis Teague? Because Dino De Laurentiis was about to give him the directing reins for another short story we're going to discuss later on in this retrospective. And man, if there's one movie I am really looking forward to discussing, that is the one. And Teague says it a lot. I I watched the commentary for this. I bought the Blu-ray for this retrospective. And Teague says it a lot. He says that yeah, King was on my back every single day. And one other thing I want to discuss before we get into the movie is 
as you said, Adam, we don't see a lot of anthologies released nowadays, and it really had a big, big surge in the 80s and early 90s, and we'll discuss those when we get into these, because King's a part of a lot of those. The reason being, and Lewis Teague has a very interesting take on this, is that they don't make too much money. And uh, Guillermo del Toro, just recently, I listened to him on, I believe it was Nick Garris' podcast, and he said, yeah, you can do these anthology movies, but they don't make money. And that's a big reason why his Cabinet of Secrets was released to Netflix. And Teague says that the reason this is is because he feels that people just have to do too much work because these things are 20, 30 minutes maybe. You have to learn a lot of characters, and you have to get into a lot of these characters' heads in that very short time frame. People aren't ready to do that, and so they don't want to do the work. Do you guys believe in that theory? I would believe it now, since we seem to be in a, wow, I'm going to sound like the old man on the porch, but a fast food microwave type society where it's give it now and give it now. I mean, even something that has started to get revered now, like Trick or Treat, for example, I mean, that's a cult following, but I wouldn't say it's a massive hit. I think there's a place, but you know what? Maybe it's just because I grew up with a love of things like Tales from the Dark Side and things like that that I, you know what, though? Those were TV watches. Uh, maybe it's just a hope that it could be done right, well, and maybe something like Saul was done, where every year you're getting a new anthology. Maybe it would take some time to build, but I think it could be done. But you know what? When I see people say that it's because of this, because of that, excuses are like assholes. Everybody's got one, and they normally stink. Like, if you do it right, your audience is going to show. Mm. Matt, same? Positively, but one additional thing I'd like to say is there is a point of differentiation I would like to make. Americans, I think, are far less interested in anthology films, specifically horror, compared to the Europeans. Because there was a point where the Europeans were embarrassing us when it came to anthology films, especially in horror. You had stuff like Asylum, you had Mario Bava's Black Sabbath, you had all, all kinds of really creative stuff. And in America, it was oftentimes very tongue-in-cheek. You know, not to detail Creepshow too much, but there's that. There was Tales from the Dark Side. I mean, Tales from the Crypt on a television platform. But I think you're right that the fact that we live in this instant coffee era where people want immediate gratification and to be spoon-fed all of their information. I mean, look, if, if people are going to complain about watching subtitles, they're damn sure going to complain about watching something that is not one continuous narrative. That's a great point. And another point, it's funny that you say that. Another commentary I listened to years ago was from Clive Barker, and you mentioned Americans as opposed to Europeans watching movies. He said, a big problem I had while directing movies was you have to get Americans' attention because they're so busy getting their goddamn popcorn and and snacks and sodas that they're so busy eating them that you can't really grab their attention because they're so focused on their food. Which is really, it's the rantings of a of an angry guy, but he's tr- he's right. It's weird when every time I go to the movie, like everybody's so focused on all their goddamn food that they're not really paying attention to the movie, you know. And and nowadays when you have phones and whatnot, it's uh, it makes it even worse. In his defense, the sound of people devouring popcorn and going through their box of whoppers is a considerably higher volume than Clive Barker's speaking voice. <laughs> Maybe we'll discuss that when we get into Nightbreed and Hellraiser. All right. We open up on a close-up on what else? A cat's eye. Before we go into the intro to the film, let's talk about the prologue that was shot, the producer shot down. It consisted of a girl, once again played by Drew Barrymore, getting killed by the troll in the final story of this anthology. And a Spoiler. mom and dad. 
Yeah. Well, no, that's that's the prologue that that starts yeah. this movie off. And they walk in as the title character is standing over her, kind of like the final shot of this movie. So the mom freaks out, grabs an automatic gun, and tries shooting the cat as it leaves the house and scampers away. Now, according to Teague on the commentary, this opening came off as too comedic, so they ended up we ended up getting what we got. But I think this prologue would have gone a long way to explain why this cat is on the mission it's on without having to dress poor little Drew Barrymore and uh, disguise her as a mannequin and making this little guy have visions at every place he goes. Would you guys have gone with that prologue, or is uh, is Teague on point here? I, I think we have to stop the press. Somebody told Stephen King no. It's because Dino and Stephen were nose deep in candy at that point. He just wasn't Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dino, you know, Dino De Laurentiis, we talked about him in pretty specific terms with the Hannibal movies back in the day. Oh, that's right. So yeah. As it pertains to that intended prologue, I think that would have been very counterintuitive to the overall tone of this movie. It would not have meshed well with anything that we have, that we see throughout all three of these stories. Now, having said that, I will bite my tongue because I have words about the last story that do tie into that supposed pro- prologue. Between Drew Barrymore dying and just the thought of of a mom grabbing an assault rifle to blow to smithereens the rejected doll from Trilogy of Terror, speaking of anthology, <laughs> to be absolutely ridiculous. Well, they were actually, she was shooting the cat because she accused the cat of doing the killing. The troll had already scampered away. Oh, that's right. Adam, what about you, sir? Would that have worked for you? God, no. That is one awkward-ass one that doesn't fit into this, but I don't know that the opening to this really sets a mood either. I think think both of them needed to sit back at a table and decide how they wanted to open this to make it clear what was going on. If it's a choice between the two, I'll definitely take the one we got. So we're starting off with the cat roaming around, and again, we're not doing these in order of release, so a little theme would have been established at this point. But we are seeing it here for the second time after seeing it just for a bit in Dr. Sleep. Cats. King will use cats a lot between Pet Cemetery, from the Tales from the Dark Side story from King, which is called The Cat from Hell, to Adam's favorite movie, Sleepwalkers. We're going to be seeing these animals a lot. And Adam, as the one person on this podcast who has cats, how do you feel about that? Do you enjoy seeing what King's coming up with here as far as cats go? For this one here, seeing that it was just going to, and not really understanding how they were going to tie together, and they don't really tie together, but at least using the cat as the through line between it, sure, I was okay with it. I'll save my thoughts at the end of how I feel about the cat overall. But I think if you're going to just, if you're going to take three stories that don't connect, find a way to connect them, you need something walking through the three. And this cat finding a way to trounce from New York to New Jersey to North Carolina, yeah, sure, why not? I hate this framing device so much. Oh, boy. <laughs> because I believe with anthology films, you can have separate stories, but you need to have some kind of a thematic through line. I can see one in two of these stories, and one of them feels tremendously separated, and I did not know I was going to be watching a prequel to Homeward Bound, watching this cat <laughs> go from, this, you know, they should have called this, you know, Pussy in the Big City, and then going, you know, hopping on the train with John Denton music playing as he goes to bumfuck North Carolina. It's generally stay out. Yeah, I think this is taking a concept and stretching it so thin that the jump rope snaps and takes someone's eye out. Wow. 
So this cat is roaming around town, and he gets chased by Cujo and a very called-out Christine, complete with bumper stickers that say, Rock and roll will never die, and watch out for me, I am pure evil, I am Christine. Now don't forget, Teague would have directed Cujo at this point, and this was in fact one of the dogs used in that production. The bumper stickers are a little loud, but I quite dig these cameos. I had a lot of fun with this opening. Nope. Oh, God. God. I literally wanted to walk out of my own house at this point. Oh, my God. It was just, and it could have been, I didn't see it coming, but I was just like, oh my god, do you really just need to yell and scream, Stephen King, David King, David King? It was just so in your face. I got over it quick, but as it was going on, I can still look at the back of my neck, my eyes rolled so far back in my head. I think I dislocated my eye socket rolling back <laughs> at these, at these callbacks, because this is... This is what happens when someone is too big for their britches, and when you are as popular as Stephen King was at this time, this is an exercise in redundancy. Christine was popular, and Cujo was popular. You did not need to be as upfront in promoting yourself as you were, because Stephen King's name is first and foremost after you got to kiss the ring of Dino De Laurentiis. But King's name is plastered all over these credits. I did not think he had to double dip and take me out of this already very thin framing device and add this subtextual meta nonsense. The little tabby successfully gets away from Cujo and runs right into a tobacco distribution center truck, and we are off and running into our first story. He sees Mannequin Drew asking a very, very Princess Leia-like to help her as he's captured... And uh, we cut to James Woods being coaxed into going to a no-smoking clinic by a good friend of his. Help me now, open now, Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> Damn it. You literally took my entire life. <laughs> now, this is a story from Night Shift called Quitters, Inc. And supposedly this was King trying to work his way through a habit, if I can get into the framing of this story a little bit. No. Uh, <laughs> though smoking might not have been it. He was a big drinker. And he also had a massive drug habit at the time, which we'll talk about more as we get deeper into Night Shift. But the one habit he has not broken, even to this day, is smoking. He allows himself three cigarettes a day today. But if if he were to quit smoking, an organization paid for by the mob would definitely be the way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, James Woods. Let's talk about James Woods. We have not discussed James Woods on this podcast yet. Adam, you and I, sir, we have kind of a history with James Woods because the two of us did see vampires in theaters together. Yes, we did. (laughs) And we love James Woods after that. And the last few years have not really done him any service. He has turned out to be kind of a piece of shit if you follow him on social media. But around this time, you know, between this and he did Cronenberg's Videodrome, a movie I just saw Mm -hmm. for the first time maybe three, four years ago and I loved. James Woods was on a high at this point and also Salvador, which would come out soon. Matt, I would assume you're a big James Woods fan. When I stay off of his Twitter page, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I stay away from that. He's at his best when he plays smarmy, not quite unlikable because this guy is character is doing this for the betterment of his family, at least so he says. So you can't entirely hate him, but I, all I see is his character from Video Drum. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's it's inescapable. He's Max Wren. I think of the three, this is the the story that feels the most like a sort of a watered-down Tales from the Crypt episode. Yep. And And I don't say that in a negative way because it's sort of the how far 
would you be willing to go to do something and like what price are you willing to pay is something that that show delved in a lot and a lot yeah. of stories in Night Shift had to do with morality and people receiving a certain amount of ironic comeuppance so this is the one of the three I think this was the one to start with seeing James Woods in this and I don't know the last time I've seen him in something where he was young you know mm-hmm. and, uh, James Woods has just always seemed older to me in movies but other than maybe his him showing up in Family Guy this is some of the best he's done you know? but yeah I think James Woods is pretty damn good casting for this I think he brings something well to it and he's believable throughout like Matt said and it's part of my notes in here this does feel like something I would have seen watching Tales from the Crypt and that's a positive not a negative that's not a pejorative at all but it just has that type of feel in this kind of story James Woods did another movie around this time called The Hard Way with Michael J. Fox which is one of my big time guilty pleasures <laughs> so him being around it's always a good thing in my eyes around this time in the 80s and 90s I always loved his presence so Morrison Richard Morrison that is he sees a distraught man in the clinic as he attempts to light up, which you go to a non-smoking clinic, you know, smoking clinic, and you're about to light up. I would call that some pretty, pretty massive balls. Yeah, it's, it's literally gaslighting. <laughs> Beautiful, sir. That's like setting up a Weight Watchers next to a Cold Stone Creamery. <laughs> or, as my friend found out, he was going to marriage counseling, and it was located right near a modeling agency. This is is the worst bit of irony you could have fucking done. They lead a woman out, and the man is met by her with a vengeance. And I'll get into my theory of what happened to this lady as we get into the story. Morrison, meanwhile, he says that he decided to change his mind as Alan King's Donati meets him, and he says that he's about to change his life. King, as in Alan, he goes into details about where Morrison's daughter goes to school, which makes Morrison feel very uncomfortable. And it must be said in the story, Morrison is resentful that his daughter turned out to be, and I'll just say the R word here, and it's a big reason given as to why he can't quit smoking. Now, we can say a lot of things about James Woods, as we said earlier, but Stephen King did him a great service by not making Morrison as shitty a character as he is in that story, because he is pretty shitty. Matt, would you agree with that? Yeah, it's actually his son in the Yeah, in the yeah. Book. In the short story, it's not, he doesn't have a daughter. That's like, for the most part, this one's pretty faithful, which makes sense because it's only 18 pages. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the minor change. It's far more blatant in the short story that his child has mental handicaps. It's, it's kind of inferred here, just based on the way the actress delivers her lines. I don't know if she actually works someone with, you know, autism or, or Down syndrome. It's Matt, that was Drew Barrymore. Was it really? Yeah, that was Drew Barrymore. Wow. I remember that was one or the same thing. Mm-hmm. Cause they gave her those gigantic cartoonish yeah. glasses that even mm-hmm. the Big Bang Theory would go, gee, those are a little, those a bit much. <laughs> so Naughty asked him for his cigarettes and then just attacked him with a vengeance. At this point, Morrison is thinking of leaving, and I wouldn't blame him. He puts these cigarettes down, and here's Naughty just taking a huge fist to these things. I, I laughed Phrasing. so hard at this. Phrasing. <laughs> is, is that his name in the book? Morrison, yes. Okay, because I kept the entire time all I was thinking was Philip Morris, Philip Morris, because the tobacco company. Oh, it just seems so yeah. on point for the for his name to be Morrison. I didn't even think about that. 
But Morrison can't leave as the cat is revealed to be in a room with shocks. And before people get in an uproar, I'll reveal that this cat wasn't actually harmed. There was somebody underneath the floor blowing air to make this cat jump as Donati's giving him shocks. And I love the gleeful look that Alan King has as he sees the cat jump. And we see how scary an individual he really is. And, uh, you know, we, we don't talk about Alan King. We probably won't talk about him at all the rest of this show's existence. But, you know, he was a comedic actor around this time, and he is gleefully evil in this. I love Alan King in this story. He's not somebody who turns into a monster or anything. And and that's the theme of Cat's Eye, really, is, yeah, we'll see a troll in that third story. But th- these are monstrous people, not necessarily monsters as in supernatural. And I think that grounded approach is something that I, as an adult... I love. Now, as a kid, my favorite story was the third story. I'll just reveal that right now because I love Drew Barrymore and I just love the concept of that story. But as an adult, I'm really gravitating towards these first two stories, notably this first one. Mm-hmm. Matt, would you agree that the grounded approach is a good one? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing here that jumps the shark into the supernatural. Like he's not a, he's not the devil or anything that absurd. And this company doesn't go so overboard that it stretches beyond plausibility. This is not David Fincher's The Game, where they, they lock him in Mexico, they send him to Mexico and he has to dig his way out. They don't go that far. It's all pretty, yeah. it's all self-contained. You know, I'm going to say, I'm going to say though, you said that you're not going to mention King any other time on this show, but I think you both are going to discuss him and James Woods working together in Casino. Oh, eventually. Yeah, you're right. If he survives, if, Adam, if uh, Garrett survives. Like, if I survive. Oh my god, that, that first round of Scorsese was rough. <laughs> so, Donati, he tells Morrison that his company has been there to make people quit smoking, and he also reveals Morrison that, that he also reveals that Morrison will be watched, and if he decides to smoke, his wife will be put in the shock room, and Morrison will be forced to watch. She won't get hurt, just a little shocked. The second time, they're gonna bring his daughter in, and on the third offense, he says he'll have to send somebody out to, and I quote, rape his wife. Which in the PG-13 movie was, oh boy. Yeah, I can't was, believe they actually phrased it and called it and spoke that line. like that. Yeah, but at, at this point, like yeah, at this point, we're not in the Me Too movement. But you're right, just to let that slip was a little a little far. But, you know, we got to show just how big pieces of shit these people really are. I, I said he wasn't a monster before, but this does kind of make him kind of monstrous and lecherous. But I, I feel this is what we saw when uh, Morrison first entered the clinic. Because that woman comes out, she's very distraught, and I think that's exactly what she experienced. Yeah, exactly. Donati then says on the fourth time, they just give up, and he reveals a gun underneath his coat. <laughs> Why would anyone sign up for this? This is crazy. <laughs> that is also a slight change for the book, because they list yeah. up to ten offenses mm-hmm. um, that get more and more heinous. And he says we have like a 98% success rate, but can't all be perfect or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like he got there. It's like, okay, okay. And you're like, oh, or we got a gun. <laughs> Don't quit smoking. We're just going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We then cut to Woods watching another Stephen King film, this one, The Dead Zone, and he angrily turns it off and yells, who writes this crap? <laughs> I got a kick out of that. I only laughed because the Cronenberg connection. Yeah, I mean, I think if they had the rights to it, I guarantee they would have thrown The Shining on there, you know, because of King's resentment towards that film. The funny <laughs> thing is in this one is there is a Shining reference. Yeah. When Woods wakes up and, his, and he looks at his alarm clock, and it's 317. Great great call, dude. Wow. 
from it's actually me. two seven. Wow, that is yeah, it is two seventeen in the book. But the fact that you noticed that, I'm very proud of you, sir. Ah, shit, I was wrong. All right, close enough. It's close enough. <laughs> right, it's okay. Morrison tells his wife that nothing's wrong other than the fact that he quit smoking six hours before. And while in bed with his wife, the urge to have a cigarette just kind of takes him over. He heads downstairs, is scared by his own shadow, and pulls some cigarettes from a drawer. He lights one up and then feels like somebody is watching him. He grabs an umbrella and beats the hell out of a golf bag. (laughs) And he sees a pair of boots in the closet and says he didn't actually smoke the cigarette as his wife wakes up with golf clubs next to her. Man, hiding out in closets to spot a guy smoking, huh? So, here's the thing. This is a bit of a misdirect as far as the tone of the movie, because while there is suspense, it's sort of undercut by cheap gags. The mirror gag, we've seen that in how many horror movies? Mm -hmm. Spooked by what they see, someone hiding in a closet. I find a lot of the tricks that they use to get scares, for the most part, to be underwhelming. There's one that pays off really well, but for the most part, I think what they're doing is pretty elementary. You're, and normally you beat up your golf bag on the course. You don't do <laughs> And this is the most accurate thing as someone who has also quit smoking. You become a motherfucker for three days before you have <laughs> anything to do with anybody. Yeah, my girlfriend quit last year, and that's exactly what she went through as well. Adam, what about you, sir? How are you feeling about the flow of it at this point? I like that it's changing it up a little bit. I mean, it's it's tough because, you know, for the master of horror... I wouldn't call this a horror at all, you know, but there's definitely some suspense and some darkly comedic elements, what's going on. And there's as much of that as anything. But this nighttime and the boots that are there and then the boots disappear, I'm down for this. You're, I mean, it's clear what's going on and you wonder just how far they're going to take it. Yeah, it should be said, this is the first time that there's been a Stephen King film rated PG-13. And the PG-13 rating would have been brand new at this time. And Mm -hmm. so I know a lot of people, a woman at work, which I'll talk about later on when we get into this next story. This was the one Stephen King thing she was allowed to watch growing up because it was PG-13. And I, I think they do play into that because this is a different tone than what we're used to from King. And it, it's not anything coming out at you at night. But these kinds of things, you're absolutely right, Adam. These kinds of things really do, it, it does enter kind of a creep factor where this guy has hid in this closet and is going to find out you, if you smoke if you do. And that's kind of scary if you look at it from the smoker's point of view. So Morrison opens the closet door and sees no one in it. But he does see footprints as his wife walks in and asks him if he wants coffee. He then picks up his daughter, played, as I mentioned earlier, by Drew Barrymore, by the way, up from St. Stephen's School for the Exceptional Guys. St. <laughs> Stephen's School. Stephen's many things. Saint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's also apparently running the X-Men based on the <laughs> Oh, He gives his daughter a doll named Norma Jean. Man, do I hate seeing Drew Barrymore act like this handicapped child. I never thought I'd say this because I love her to death, but is she bad here? So, is this the earliest example of someone going full retard? I think so. Morrison spots Donati, and there's a minor scuffle going on as Morrison is none too pleased with spotting one of his goons inside his closet. He tells Morrison that he loves his wife and kid, and then Donati responds, that's unusual but useful. And he ends the conversation with the phrase, I will be watching you, and we cut to a cover of Every Breath You Take, which, by the way, I find brilliant. I have to say, God knows we'll be seeing a lot of dread and darkness in this retrospective, but this story, and movie for the most part, while littered with a few pieces of darkness, 
is flowing at a clip, and that is due to the dark comedy that is in this movie. We don't see this side of Stephen King too much, and I must say it's a shame because I'm really digging this movie and the way the dark humor is kind of taking it over. What about you guys? Matt, are you still in defense mode here? Are you still in, I should say, offense mode? Are you resenting this? No, because I like how it's twisted without being overly morbid, which is a, a tough line to cross, and I think King will see in a few years, hell, it could be 10 years at this point, when he tries to go for, I don't want to say schmaltz, but he kind of, speaking of cats, he declawed himself after a while and sort of softened up a bit. But here, this is a good balance. I'd put this on par with something like, you know, this is sort of a good, at least this story is a good contemporary to like what you'd see in Twilight Zone, the movie, as far as tone, where it's not meant to be, look, if you're looking for something that's going to, you know, to quote Maximum Overdrive, scare the hell out of you, this is not that kind of anthology horror film. It's even lighter than Creepshow, which we'll talk about. Yeah. That's kind of the, that's kind of the surprising thing, because there's, there's at least one story in Creepshow that is darker than anything that is perceived in these three. I'm putting it through the filter of King realizing that he's got addictions and demons, and I think he's literally writing, what is it going to take for me to stop doing coke? Like, that, that's just what I'm projecting onto it. So I think based on that, it goes into some good, darkly funny areas. I mean, this kind of dark comedy, and it gets even darker comedic here in a little bit, I think it works. I think it works quite well. We have a party where Morrison is just going crazy as people are smoking everywhere, and he's even seeing a tray of eggs watching him, (laughs) all while the cover of I'll Be Watching You plays in the background. We then cut to another thing we'll be seeing again soon, this drawbridge, because... Matt, this is the exact drawbridge that is in Maximum Overdrive, where Marlon Maples gets hit with a martyr watermelon. More on that next year. Morrison is stuck in traffic, and the urge to have a cigarette is just killing him. So this he reaches is, over. This is Go the most realistic thing. For anybody that's been stuck commuting, stuck in traffic when they're a smoker, oh, my God, I could feel this. This was palpable for me right here. <laughs> I used to get stuck. Uh, for anybody that knows California, I'd be stuck on Highway 12, and there's two drawbridges. And if I got stuck on one, it was a 10-minute stop to get the bridge up and down, and people would stop, turn off their car, and lean on them until the bridge went down. <laughs> what would I do? Stop and have a smoke. <laughs> if you know New England at all, specifically Rhode Island slash Massachusetts, uh, 195 going into Providence was, was like this. Not a bridge, at least one that raises and lowers, but that just 9 to 5, 5 o'clock rush hour time where you are bumper to bumper and just want to move even the slightest of amount. And the, and the urge to not just smoke. It could be punch a hole in your glove compartment. It could be throw something. King is very good when he focuses on the day-to-day sort of things that are either mundane or aggravating. I think he pulls those off very well. And that's, I think, his strength as a writer with short stories is that he's very good at giving you all the essential character info that you need in a truncated format. So Morrison reaches over, and I love how Woods is playing this. He's scared to death, and he looks so funny as he puts on sunglasses, and then he brushes the smoke as he's lighting up in the passenger seat of his car. He then sits up, and we see one of Donati's thugs in a Dodger's hat just drive away. <laughs> He pulls into his house, and before we talk about what he doesn't see in there, we have to talk about this score. Now, this is done by a very young and not quite famous yet, Alan Silvestri. Mm -hmm. This is right before Back to the Future hit the skids, and 
holy shit, is this score abysmal. It sounds like he was just given a Casio keyboard, not much different from the one I had as a kid. It sounds all over the place, and it does not go with the tone of this movie, I don't think. Man, this score is bad. I think for something that's a 20-minute piece that you're not going to set a full score to, it doesn't distract from me. It's not great. Yeah, and he did he did score the entire film. So oh, did he really? Okay. Yeah, he did the entire film, except for that final song, which we'll discuss. Matt, are you going with the score here? I know you don't pay attention to scores as much as I do, but was this kind of distracting for you? You lost me at the words. How do you feel about the music? <laughs> I figured. <laughs> All right, moving on. So Morrison sees that his wife Cindy is not home as the phone rings, and he answers a call from Donati. They bring Morrison in, and his wife is revealed to be in the shock room. But in a skirmish, the cat falls off the counter and escapes as Donati's goon looks at the cat's direction with his gun. And in a moment of rage, Donati yells, Not the cat, you hemorrhoid! Get the gun! <laughs> which, which, his wife being shocked and the music choices play. Oh, like, yeah. It is such a creepy, dark, funny moment that I think is just, it's, it just underscores everything about how uncomfortable this feels. I love it. Speaking of anthologies, we'll also see in two of these stories henchmen who don't know where to aim or have the reflexes <laughs> of a deceased cat, not a live cat. I hadn't seen this movie. It's at least been at least ten years since I've watched this. But for some reason, as a kid, I used to love the one. Not the cat, you hemorrhoid. Get the god. Rod, get the cat. <laughs> yeah. Alan King, as the comedic guy that he is, the way he delivers that, that's the one time I actually feel comedy coming from him. It's really dark and humorous. They shock Cindy, and I do love the little moment where Donati's henchman is laughing his ass off, and Donati shoots him a look, and he just all of a sudden just stops. (laughs) Great little moment there, and we see the two guys taking bets about whether or not Morrison's wife slaps him. And this movie is great for people who live where I live, because between this story and the next one, it works as an anti-gambling commercial, I think. <laughs> we cut to the little kitty hopping on a boat and Morrison weighing himself. So you'd think just getting Morrison to quit smoking would be enough, right? But now they want to monitor his weight. Hey, one, James Woods is upset <laughs> that he's going to be 148 pounds. 68. 168. 168? Okay, still yeah. 168 pounds. That's 160-pound-soaking wet James Woods right there. This, to me, is very Tales from the Crypt, where the organization finds a way to keep monitoring you beyond the present issue. Mm -hmm. I like this idea that it's going to be this endless cycle, which is also an allegory for addiction, because people will turn to, you know, you quit one thing in it, looking for something to fill that void. Uh, I think this is actually a, a nice bit of commentary, which leads to a very ghoulish ending that is kept intact from the short story. Directly from the short story, yeah. There's a little joke exchange where Donati says, if Morrison doesn't make weight, they'll cut off his wife's little finger. And James Woods is laughing at this. And wouldn't you know it, the final shot of this story is his wife raising a glass to roast Quitters Incorporated and the camera zooming in on her missing little finger. Mm. Pretty gruesome stuff for a PG radiated uh, 1985 film, I must say. That final shot's just the perfect punctuation. Absolutely. They also, there's a thing in the book where he gets the invoice the bill. We don't charge you until a year. And there's a 50 cent surcharge for electricity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't cut from this missing little finger to a cat having a hot dog. <laughs> Again, very darky humorous as he is now in Atlantic City and being told by Drew on the TV that he is her only hope. 
once again pulling out Carrie Fisher for this inspiration. I was just trying to find a way to get Drew into this second story. Because, I mean, she she at least participated somewhat in the first one, and she's a major part of the third. But there's no reason for her to be the second one here. No. And she's top build. That's what blew me away. She is top build in this. Mm -hmm. Oh, she was a big star? Yeah. Yeah, and the kind of the part where she goes, years ago, you served with my father in the, the child wars. Now he begs you to fight against the, the dog empire. <laughs> Your meowly hope. Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> to be continued next year. We cut to Kressler as he makes his way through his casino, and he makes a bet that this cat can't make it across the street. Of course, this is this is a deviation from the short story. In the short story, he doesn't. They do not make a bet that a cat can cross the street. But six cars crash so that this little putty cat can live on. <laughs> does King is, does he have a vice for gambling as well? That I can't answer. I have never read a foreword of his where he talks about gambling at all. But it wouldn't surprise me. I don't think there's any casinos in scenic Maine. Um, yeah, <laughs> no legal but, ones. Yeah, I don't. Think so because it's not like gambling plays a tremendous factor in any of his books. That, that's not really a through line. So it'd be interesting to ask him. One of the many things I like to ask him. And I love the line: "Don't worry about the cars; they're special effects." <laughs> that's a great little line that they tell the cat as he's getting it across the street here. We then cut to Robert Hay scrambling to get his girlfriend on a bus. Now this brings up a couple points. First, in a couple of years, we'll be reviewing another King anthology called Creep Show, as I mentioned earlier on, and. In that, a star from Airplane holds a man who has been sleeping with his wife hostage at a beach. <laughs> Here, we have a star of Airplane be on the opposite end, and the truth is, I like the former story better to spoil that review, but we'll get there in a couple years. And second, I didn't see Airplane until way later on in life. So when I first watched this movie, I did recognize Robert Hayes, but Adam, you're going to laugh your ass off when I say from where. I'm going to think about this, because I'm... What would you have, what would you have, speaking of Homeward Bound? Yeah. <laughs> no. So in the 80s, they did a show based on the movie Starman. Oh my goodness. Oh, you, and you love that movie. I do. And Hayes was a Jeff Bridges character in that show. And God, <laughs> did I love that show. Wow. <laughs> it was syndicated. I'd watch it every Saturday night. Uh, it only lasted a year. And by the way, it is on Tubi. <laughs> so <laughs> you're. Curious. The season of the show is on Tubi, but yeah, that's where I recognize him from. I didn't see Airplane until probably about five, six years after I saw this film. So you know what? Looking at his screen credits, Garrett, he's got a connection to our hometown because he's in Sharknado 2. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> it all what? comes together. Airplane, the Starman TV show, and Sharknado. It all comes full circle. <laughs> <laughs> Here, Hayes is a guy who gets caught by his girlfriend's husband, and I fail to feel anything for him because he's nothing if not guilty. I mean, who the hell is a tennis coach anymore? <laughs> this is a very 80s plight, I must say. It's exactly <laughs> what, go, what James Woods does in Casino. <laughs> this is also the consummate. Tales of the Crypt would go to the well a lot of times, and it was always about a lot of episodes where a guy trying to kill another guy so he could be with a woman or someone trying to kill their mistress. Mm-hmm. I mean, this goes back to Hitchcock. This is a staple of the genre. But my biggest problem with the story is Robert Hayes. All I see is the guy from Airplane between his facial expressions yes. and him going, ah, as he's 
off, leaning off the side. The suspense comes from everything around him, not his performance. Good point. So he's walking to his car as a goon says that hay is for horses, sometimes for cows. Pigs don't eat it because they don't know how. And this is the line that the bartender at my job says every single day. And she tries getting people to recognize it. Like, if you know this line, I'll give you a free drink. And nobody's recognized it yet. I was the only one who has. So Cresser's men, they plant heroin in Norris's car and then give him a wager. The wager is if he can walk the entire five-inch ledge, he gets $20,000 and his wife. He just can't lose his balance. Now, I know what King is playing with here. It's, it's the fear of heights. And for 1985 effects, these aren't bad. It's not blue screen, by the way, which I found interesting. This oh. is all miniatures. And some really nice matte paintings that they did. I, uh-huh. I, I love seeing a matte painting. So when I saw those, I was like, all right, I can go with the matte painting. My compliments to this segment go towards the way they capitalize on agoraphobia with some elementary filmmaking techniques. It's nothing spectacular, but look, Lewis Teague made Alligator, where he had to yeah. shoot around something to make it look like a 35-foot sewer-dwelling monster that lives in New York City. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is the movie that King saw that made him want him for this particular film. That movie's fucking awesome. Like, if you guys have not seen Alligator, and you enjoy elevated trash, it's the McDonald's of B-movies where it's, it's the A grade of the B tier. Didn't John Sayles write it too? Like this high end fucking screenwriter and playwright write fucking alligator? I always found that weird. Forster was the lead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't see the sequel though. Oh my god. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. It's awful. What the hell is it called? Alligator 2. Alligator 2. Cressner <laughs> says he never welches on a bet and Norris finds his way on the ledge. And, of course, Kressner is just a dick, telling Norris he doesn't think he has the guts to do it, yelling at him that he's just trying to keep him on his toes, and even spraying a fucking fire hose at him. <laughs> yeah, which is not in the book. No. Short story. All the tactics he uses, which are borderline cheating, I guess, it's entirely, the short story is also first person, told from his perspective, and it starts with him already in the mobster's Skyline apartment. Another preamble with, Kressler at the casino is here, but again, it's King doing really well with the details where he talks about, like, no margin for error and how he has to maneuver his hands and that got, and those goddamn pigeons. Oh my god. Now that is something directly from the story. Yep. And, and King does a really good job of illustrating just this, this fucking little pigeon that just won't stop pecking away at this guy's ankle. And the more I read that, I'm like, oh, like, it, it maybe Crince is reading it, and he does a very, they do a very good job of illustrating that here. Adam, as a non-King fan, uh, what are you feeling at this point? Are you going with this story like you were last, with the last one? I am, until I realize that it's 30 minutes of a dude walking across the ledge. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, it is, this story is literally get from point A to point B. It works and it gets there, but it's, this is so much of a very, very low rent Alfred Hitchcock presents episode of this one. That's how I feel, but it's simple. It does the job. Well, like you said, I can't get airplane out of my freaking head every time it's zooming in on his face. But I like the map paintings. It just, I can't believe it takes 30 minutes to get from point A to point B. And for the record, there's a great episode of Tales from the Crypt starring Kyle McLaughlin that is about a convict who kills the cop that he's handcuffed to, has to drag him across the desert while being chased by a vulture. So birds being assholes are very common in anthology <laughs> horror stories. Oh, boy. I do love the carnival horn that he has. 
So I have no fucking idea why this guy would have one of these. Does he roam around his house in a fucking clown outfit? Who knows with that fucking robe? But it's fun stuff. And uh, this guy, if you get, if you recognize him, it's probably from Dune. He was a pretty big part of uh, David Lynch's Dune that yep. came out. He was, uh, what's his name, Baron Harnacken. Yeah, pretty memorable if you've uh, seen that movie. And he would die maybe a year after this movie was released, but he's such a funny presence here. And again, there's some pretty scary moments with wind machines and, as I mentioned earlier, this bird that just won't leave Norris's ankle alone. I do love when we fi- when he finally just kicks this fucking bird off the roof. Like, you're saying the entire time, just kick it, kick it! And he finally does, and you just see the feathers fly. It is a full-on NFL punt. Yeah. <laughs> a wide shot where you can't see a foot. You just see the bird from one end of the screen to the other. It absolutely cracks me up that, yeah, I was going to say, when it pans away and you just see the feathers go flying, this guy could join and be a punter of the freaking Matt's jet squad. Yeah. This poor bird that comes back. There was one part here that really made me laugh, and that's when he's hanging off the neon sign. The reason it made me laugh is about a month ago, they were replacing the neon A that makes up the sign on the 27th floor of the resort that I work at, and the crane broke, and the A fell through the glass ceiling above the indoor pool. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> nobody was killed, nobody was hurt, which is why it's funny, but I'm seeing this guy hang off this, I'm like, oh my god, I hope there's a pool underneath you. <laughs> and, you know, it, and I'm watching this as Robert Hayes is probably hanging four feet off the ground, but again, I think the force perspective and the way the miniatures are working here really works for this scene. Norris makes his way in, and Kressner proves that he doesn't welch on his bets by kicking the bag open and having both the money and his wife's head fall on the floor. Oh, Again, very darkly humorous. Did not I love see this, that coming. Yeah, I, I love this reveal because it's, it's just cleverly demented, and it's definitely something this guy would do. The most gruesome thing, though, in this entire movie, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, uh, which he mm-hmm. has walking across that ledge. The cat trips a goon, and Norris gets the gun, and he shoots the guard, and then threatens Kressner until we see him out on the ledge, falling off in a shot that I can't help but be reminded of. <laughs> Another thing we'll be discussing in a few couple years, Die Hard. There's <laughs> Hans Gruber's falling off the Yeah, building. well, I was thinking of Robocop when Ronnie Cox oh, yeah. falls out the window. We then cut to Wilmington, North Carolina, and the story that I loved a lot as a child, because I was around Drew's age, had seen her in E.T., and this story right here is one where she is center stage as she watches a cat go one-on-one with a troll. Made up entirely for this movie, as me and Matt mentioned earlier, this is not a short story. Let's talk about this troll, as it is the first thing we see right after the cat jumps off this train. And speaking of E.T., this was designed by Carlo Rambaldi, who had also worked on E.T. And I like it. Even the bells on his head. It has a real fairy tale quality to it. It's definitely not scary, but I love that King turned this into like a mini fairy tale. Do we see it at the beginning? Yeah, we see it run through the woods in the beginning. It's, it, we're seeing it first-person view, pretty much. Oh, yeah, yeah. We see the first-person view of it running through. I was, uh-huh. I was trying to figure out what it was, because I was hearing the bells, and I'm like, well, that's clearly not the cat. Did they bring Cujo? No, it's not Cujo that we saw running at the beginning. So I was really interested in what it was going to be. I assumed we were going to have two animals going at it, you know, a mongoose or something like that. So I had no clue what I was going to experience in about 20 minutes when I saw this thing finally come out. 
And it's also voiced by Frank Welker, who did Gremlins. And, you know, Gremlins had come out the year before, and we're hearing the exact voice that Stripe used in that film. It throws you off because you're kind of thinking Gremlins. And I think 1985, that was a year after Gremlins, and that was a very popular film. So I do think they're kind of playing off that. It does seem like a cross between Gremlins and Critters. Uh, Oh, God. A movie, God forbid, we never cover. I like this better when I saw it in Trilogy of Terror. That Zulu warrior doll. I was chasing Karen Black around. Was it Karen Black or Karen Allen? What's her name? It's Karen Black. Karen Black. We'll be discussing Karen Allen next year. It also has the face of the Rancor from Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Yep. It's a a hodgepodge of impish ideas. And to me, this is where the movie takes a nosedive. Really? This story, I think, is insufferable. See, again, as a child, I loved it. I can see it being that way as an adult because I don't have those childish impulses anymore. But I still have fun with this. The cat chases a troll into the house, and Drew is automatically asking if they can keep him. What about these stories of cats taking girls' breath as they sleep? Mm-hmm. Adam, you as the guy who owns cats, I mean, do these have any relevance whatsoever? Oh, this is exactly why they tell you that if you, when you have a baby, you do not let your cat in the room where the baby sleeps. No kidding. Yeah, so it's an old wife's tale, and it, yeah, it came from the, they would steal their breath. Some people surmise they would smother an infant. But, oh, yeah, this is completely taken from the don't let your baby. Now it's about toxoplasmosis, but it's all about do not let your cat in the room or your baby while it's sleeping. Wow. And did you guys abide by that when your kids were little? Like, did you not let your cats in the room or anything? We were in there as well, but once they, babies, once they were in the room by themselves with a monitor and that on, yeah, the door was shut where the cats were not allowed in there. I thought King was completely making this up, but this is, oh, wow. There is scientific backing, but it stems from myth originally because this started around a time where people had no idea what sleep apnea was. Mm-hmm. And when people started dying and there were cats in the room, people assumed that. And there was also a belief that cats could steal souls. I don't know what part of the world that comes from, but let's be honest, cats are assholes and nothing surprises me. <laughs> wow, so this is a great companion piece to Catwoman then. All right, well, never mind. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that was the worst thing that happened to cats to dogs. <laughs> I do like the symmetry of Tom and Jerry being on the TV. As we'll see a similar version of this being played out later on. See, things having a- when that happens, I'm like, okay, I see what they're doing. We're gonna get like a ruse. We're gonna get a rodent of unusual size. That's what we're gonna get. You know. <laughs> So you're still trying to put this together. You're still trying to put what exactly this creature is. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Because every now and then you hear the little dingle dingle, and that made me think that this cat's going to battle something. And I'm serious the entire time. But clearly Adam never looked at the poster because it gives it away. <laughs> I do love that, though. Like It's almost like Adam's back in 1985 at the theater watching this. It's interesting to me that he's still trying to put this together. So Debbie Downer, she strikes again as she accuses Drew of actually letting the cat in her room as she found cat hairs all over. She then threatens to send General to the animal shelter and even says that the bird is in danger the longer the cat stays in her room. The dad then makes fun of her mom's accent. (laughs) It's really made me laugh. These two parents, Adam, you knew my parents. They were nothing like this. I I couldn't imagine having two parents. How are these two even married? I have no idea. (laughs) They're together for the kid. Yeah, that's what I put together, too. Alcohol. There you go. 
We cut the night time as the cat is being thrown outside, and Drew reminds us that King is making a modern fairy tale by bringing up five Billy Goats Gruff. We cut to the troll making a hole in the wall and living up to the tales of cats taking little girl's breath. What is this thing? I would like an origin story, please. What exactly is this troll? Where did he come from? It's a weird damper on this story where I don't know exactly what this thing is, but I guess that's what King's playing on, right? This is part of my problem where this story does not mesh with the previous two. You're, you're introducing something that is entirely supernatural, fantastical. This is not really a story that has to deal with morality in a way, unless you're on the cat side. It feels very disconnected from what we've seen before, and, part, and that's part of why I, I resent it as much as I do. And part of it is just because this thing looks like a reject that Jim Henson like, oh, throw, burn it, <laughs> throw it away, I never want to see that again, get out of my office. Adam, what about you, sir? <laughs> When this frickin' floorboard opens up, and I was not expecting that or what the hell came out. It was, I, I like the effect of that wall opening Yeah, up. I do too. I think that's kind of cool. That works. I just could not believe what walked out of it. This is such a departure from everything else. Like Matt said, there's some issues. The, it, doesn't, it doesn't jive completely with it. I'll say, though, I don't dislike this at all. But I start to have questions the longer than it goes. What was it, waiting for the cat to show up before it decided to come out and steal her breath? Where has mm-hmm. it been the whole time? Where is it? Ca- Cotton Eye Joe, where did you come from? Where did you go? Like, what is any little <laughs> history with this thing? Is there more of them? Does every house have a little wall troll just waiting to kill the kids? It's like a tickle pants from Clark's Tale. <laughs> This is why I loved it as a kid, though, because as a kid, you're not thinking about any of this. And I was fresh from those fairy tales that my parents would read me as a child. And so I'm watching this and I'm kind of putting those together. And this is definitely something you could show your kids. You know, a lot of these King movies, Mm -hmm. I know your kids are older now, Adam, but I I, I would not show the majority of these to those kids. And this one, I I think your kids could have fun with it. Christian, you heard that right. Go put on Cat's Eye in Riker's uh, bedroom. I wouldn't show the majority of King's movies to actual people, but yes, I could definitely show at least this segment to the kids. And it crossed my mind. Like, when it was done, I'm like, oh, I kind of wanted to sit down with Maddie and watch this. <laughs> Just to give better response. I was yeah. at the point where it's like, I'll show this to a bunch of inmates, and they'll be like, I'll gladly watch the Green Mile. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it, Adam would put in an express lane. <laughs> I'm sorry, boss. No more. <laughs> so tired of this bullshit. There's a skirmish in Drew's room as the troll slays the parakeet with a tiny dagger and then tries to steal Amanda's breath. It's got sword. Right. <laughs> oh, shit. This is the worst sequel to Toy Story I have ever seen. <laughs> After wounding the, sh- uh, the cat shoulder, the troll flees, leaving Amanda and her parents to discover the dead bird. And then this is what convinces the dad, okay, maybe this cat is evil because... The bird is now dead, but after the mom is upset and throws her fit and gets the cat out of the room, the dad discovers this little tiny dagger right in the right in the room. Just kind of looks and it's full of blood, and he's like, "Hmm, what exactly is this?" And it's great when he goes to the mom about it. And he's like, "I didn't realize that cat had such a big pecker." A big pecker. What a Stephen King line? No, the line is what he did before he wrote the script. <laughs> <laughs> You're not having any fun with this whatsoever, Matt? 
No, I I hate the last 20 to 25 minutes of this movie. Like I said, it does not match what I've seen before. And to me, this is like if Amblin stepped in to direct. Because Drew Barrymore crying over that bird like it was fucking Henry Thomas uh, on, the op- on the autopsy <laughs> robot. I'm like, wow, she loved that bird. So Debbie Downer suckers the cat into this box with some cat food, and she takes it to the animal shelter to be euthanized, which, man, they have a fast schedule at this fucking clinic. They turn an animal shelter into Auschwitz. <laughs> my Auschwitz in here. My fur so, her. <laughs> so the troll returns and uses a doorstep to kind of wedge Amanda's door shut, and then reattempts to take the sleeping girl's breath. I just want, I want to see the making of this segment, because I want to see them filming this person in this gremlin outfit, putting this fucking door stuff. Yeah, well, that's they, they put a little person in a costume. Yeah. Especially on the, the part where he's, like, on her... Dresser, yeah. yeah well, um, when, when he's, like, on top of her, they just juxtapose that into the shot. And that stuff looks pretty good. There's not a lot of complaining you can do with the effects. I just, like I said, I, I liked when Karen Black was fighting that thing in her hotel room. <laughs> Hell, I watched the first child's play. Uh, I think this is at least equal to that, though. I'm, I'm having, even though I don't like it as much as I did as a kid, as a, I, I do agree with you, Matt, in that it does feel, as opposed to the other stories, a little childish, and it feels a little redundant, as you said, if you've seen the trilogy of terror. But I'm still having... A lot of fun with this. I, I think it might have to do with a lot of the fact that I like Drew Barrymore, too, and, I, and I'm rooting for her. She's a very rootable character, you know, as opposed to when we talked about, say, I don't know, the aviator when there was no one to root for. Here, I am really having fun with uh, Drew Barrymore's play. I enjoy so, that Mighty Meowth comes in to try and save the day. All right, let's get there. So the cat is, uh, well, the shelter's giving him his final meal. He's just, they're just like, okay, we're going we're gonna to eliminate you, and we had the red tag, which basically means he's going to be killed in the morning but he fi- he finds a way to escape and we see this fight in this girl's room and i agree that it's a little silly it's a little cheesy i mean this cat is pawing away as it's on a helium balloon and it's spinning around like that's all <laughs> weird stuff but i don't know man i think it still looks good and i'm still having fun with it adam i want to go to you first before i go to the debbie down on this podcast uh, how are you feeling about this particular fight? It, it's a much better little miniature fight than <laughs> it's funny. What what I went to was oh god and god help me was watching the Bratzies in fucking yoga hosers that Kevin Smith made. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! Oh god! But this one I'm I'm having fun watching these go at it. And when it's on the balloon, because I'm trying to think, okay, how are they making the cat act? And oh yeah, they got something on the balloon. And they're speeding it up in a way that we can't see it, but the cat is batting at it. And it's doing what a cat's going to do. And then once it gets to the record player, so, I, man, I should not be enjoying this last segment, but I am. And, Matt, are you just resenting this final fight? Yeah, I wish they catnipped this entire segment from the rest of the movie. (laughs) Now, what woke me up, and I guess turned my frown upside down, was how this thing is dispatched. I love it, too. It's great. Because they once again bring every breath you take into this. And, by the way, what six-year-old, seven-year-old girl has every breath you take on a record? I don't know. But the cat turns the record player on, and the troll's on it, and for some reason he finds the speed button. And so it's going round and round and round until the 
flies right into a heater located in her room. It is fucking fun as fuck. I love this. Well, it's it's like a fan in her room. Yeah. And it gets yeah. like um it's like putting up basically the equivalent of putting putting it in a blender. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great point. And this entire time, being that it was a king, I was waiting for that door to get broken down and get a father looking like Jack through that door. Oh, nice. But, but it's <laughs> parents. If you think your kid's in mortal danger, find a way to break the goddamn door down, please. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you mentioned, the troll did put a little doorstop in there. But, you know, and, and the, seeing these parents struggle to get into this room, it reminded me of another movie we covered from 1985, Matt, uh, Nightmare on Street Part 2, when they, they're trying to get into the room as Grady's getting killed by Freddy and that. Like, these parents are trying so hard to get in here, but a doorstop is preventing them from being able to get in this room. Yeah. The, well, these doors must have been made out of Entwood because they're impossible <laughs> to get through. <laughs> the parents break down the door, or break into the room, and Amanda describes how General saved her from this troll. And the parents, they believe the story when parts of the troll's corpse are discovered. <laughs> Proof your parents will only believe you if there is physical evidence. Great message to your kids. <laughs> <laughs> and they again find the tiny dagger and the hole in the wall that the troll used. So now General is a part of the family. We're seeing it be fed some great fish, and it's, uh, it's living the life. But I will say, I've had a lot of fun with this, but this final shot in this movie, it's so bizarre to me because the cat's approaching her and we're hearing the suspenseful music, right? This is the most suspenseful music Alan Sefer Street has used this entire film. Mm-hmm. As the cat approaches Drew Barrymore, the cat's propped on her chest and coming up to her face. We're supposed to believe that he's going to kill her, right? We're supposed to believe that it is going to take her breath. I think it's at least supposed to make you think. I mean, this hasn't been a scary segment, but I think at the end, King's trying to write in the real quick, oh... We have to think, is the cat actually going to kill her? Yes. But, no, it's not doing that as it approaches and licks her face. And we see lots of joy on Drew's face as we cut to black. And these two, I guess, live happily ever after. And that's it. Do you and think, then we get... Quick question. Go ahead. Do you think it would have worked if they left that ambiguous? Where maybe she did not wake up and hug General close and happily. You know, if it was just started to lick her... Th- and what... Hats off to kid Drew Barrymore to lay there sleeping without flinching, mm-hmm. without moving. Unbelievable. But if it was just the cat starts to lick her face and that's how it ends, do you think it would have been a satisfying, creepy ending? Uh, first of all, I do want to say also I want to give props to the trainers of this cat as well because, man, what what a oh, job yeah. this cat does. I want to praise the cat actor, and that's probably about as much as I praised James Woods earlier. I think this cat is phenomenal in this story. But, Adam, to answer your question, I think as a 12-year-old watching this for the first time, that would not have satisfied me. As an adult, I'm looking at it, and I do like the pessimistic maybe, maybe not ending more ambiguous ending I, I think it just depends on your uh, mentality at that point but i think as a as a kid yes as an adult eh, not so much i was waiting for this cat to turn out to be psychic or something i was waiting for some kind of explanation as to why it sought out drew barrymore beyond just the troll i thought there was something more sinister so i was a bit surprised that they didn't leave anything open to imagination and they live happily ever after which again just feels like a bit out of place with the other two because the first two end with some kind of tragic irony 
or in-joke, in the case of Quitters, Inc., sort of foreboding what's to come. So the fact they pulled their punches in this one just makes it, again, feel too dissimilar from the first two. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Cat's Eye? Uh, Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. This was a weird one for me because I was trying to figure out, okay, do I score this individual and do I round up the numbers? Do I, you know, do I look at as a whole? It's as a whole, it's, I mean, it's not one movie. It's three short stories. It's an anthology format and I appreciated it for that. I, the first one, Quitters Inc., I got a lot of, of really good dark humor out of that. I, I thought James Good, James Woods did a good job. They did and that was the type of show that I would enjoy staying up late at night after watching Saturday night's main event and roller games and finally turning on Tales from the Dark Side, you know? It brought me back to being a kid. The second story, The Ledge, there wasn't much there for me. That ledge took way too long to get through. I could appreciate what they're doing, but, man, that thing that thing seemed to drag on enough that my fingers were hurting from crossing out the ledge. And then when we got to the end, you know, that final story – I found myself falling for general, and I'm like, I got a name for my next cat, whatever it may be. So there's ups and downs overall, but, man, I went in with my arms crossed going, I can't believe, you know, I was thinking of of James Caan in Eraser, of all things. I expected to come in here going, Garrett, I can't believe you hit me with this cheap-ass piece of shit. But, no, at the end, this wasn't a bad watch, and... Three stories. However, each story is about 10 minutes too long. I think you should have gotten maybe four 20-minute stories instead. Each, each of these should have been clipped a little bit more. Cut those claws to keep it going because they seem to ramble towards the end like I'm starting to do here. But for a King movie, it's probably going to be better than a lot of what I'm going to recommend. I would watch the first and third one again. Absolutely. The ledge isn't ever going to happen, but I'm going to put this, I'm, I'm going to put this one. I'm going to pitch it right down the middle. I'm going to give this a five, which I can't believe I'm going to do. Didn't hate it. Didn't love it, but yeah, solid five for cat's eye. Not a bad one. Five out of 10. After all that positivity, really Matt, what about you, sir? To surprise you, I am going to go higher than a five. For something that I went into, both my cat's eyes were completely closed and not knowing what to expect. I didn't know what these stories were. I had a good time for two-thirds of this movie. And then when I got to the general, I kind of wish they euthanized the cat and called it a mercy killing. This spared me the last 30 minutes or however long it was. Because I've, I've said my piece that I don't think it blends well. It's the weakest of the three. And I think it always hurts your anthology when you end on your weakest segment because it can sort of sour the overall experience. And that's the tough thing with scoring anthology horror films. Like Adam said, do you add all grade them all up an average amount? Do you look at it as one experience? So I I have to grade this as a 90 minute viewing experience. And there was more here than I liked or more here that I liked as opposed to disliked. I thought the first story was very, true to the spirit of what I like about these kind of stories. I like that the ledge tackled something very universal with the fear of heights and executed it pretty well. Technically speaking, I just wish they picked a different lead actor. And then that fucking cat had to go to North Carolina and I wish that train exploded on the way there because God, I hate this last story so much. So it, it is going to soften my overall grade on this. So I'm going to land a little bit higher than Adam. I'm going to land a 6 on 10. I would absolutely watch the first two as a double feature, a one-hour-long television special, and then happily go to bed. 
Man. All right. Well, as for me, you know, I hadn't seen this, as I mentioned earlier, in at least 10 years. And it's definitely a different experience as anything is as an adult as opposed to being a child and being wide-eyed and watching these things happen in front of you. As an adult and as people who have a podcast that review the technicalities and everything else that has to do with film, I still had a pretty good time with this. And as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're not going to see too much of the comedic king in this retrospective. At least intentionally comedic king in this retrospective. We'll definitely see it get funny, but I don't think it's intentional. That being said, I enjoyed this tone of this film, and I think it carries a lot of it. I think the strongest one is the first. I think Quitter's Inc. works. And as somebody who has read that short story and then reread it for this particular podcast, it fits the tone of that, and it fits exactly what King is going for as far as what he brings to a cinematic experience. I, I think at this point, you know, Dilo De Laurentiis just told him, as I mentioned, there's Drew Barrymore, write something for her, and that's the framing device. And I think putting this story in was a great idea. I think The Ledge is less successful, but not by much. I still have a good time with that. I have a lot of fun with Kressner's fucking with uh, Robert Hayes on that ledge. And again, I have a fear of heights myself. So seeing this play out, it, it, it tapped into something for me, even if, again, it's not fully successful, because as Matt, as Adam mentioned earlier, we're pretty much spending 20 minutes watching this guy go around this ledge. But the effects of it and the way uh, I feel while watching this, while it doesn't match what I saw in the walk through Robert Zemeckis' movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it still fills that void of playing into that fear of heights for me. And so that was less successful, but still a fun experience. Uh, the third story, The General, Matt, you're a little hard on it, but I'm going to go more with you because I think as a child that tapped into a lot of things that I loved, I loved Gremlins, I loved Drew Barrymore, I uh, wasn't a big fan of cats, but I, you know, I did imagine if I did have a cat, these parents would be this exact same way. Adam, I think you would agree with that. My mom was never a fan of cats. And this was... <laughs> she took in this tray. Yeah. <laughs> but as an adult, I watch it. And yeah, it's silly. But still, I think the a lot of the ironies in it and a lot of the way the final fight is, I still think it's fun to watch. I, I still think it's something that is not as fulfilling, but it's like... A hamburger. You know, you, you eat it, you're done with it, it's over, but you enjoy it while it's being done. So those are the three stories. I would give the first one a solid seven, second one, solid six, third one, about a five and a half. Where does that land for me? I'm still going to land on the seven because I think overall it's a pretty enjoyable experience. And I'm also going to go with that positivity because guess what? In this night shift collection, there's not going to be too much of it. So I want to try to start this off with last week as well as being a good jumping point, if not a good landing point. So yeah, seven out of 10 for me on Cat's Eye. I'm going to give this movie credit and, and thank it for one thing. And it's that it made me think that I need to go out and get this night shift novel, this collection. Because in a short format, I think I'm going to read these. So, good job on that. Yeah, and you know, and as I mentioned last week, there's a lot of things that King introduces in that set of stories that he carries on throughout his entire career. Go back to last week and listen to that. But I, I think 
in retrospect, I think King is very effective in short story form. I agree with you. Even if King doesn't agree with how this book of short stories came out, as far as how he was made to pretty much release something in between novels, I agree with you. A lot of these stories, you run the gamut of spoiled beer that turns people into monsters to somebody, again, having eyes on their hand. And as I mentioned last week, he also goes way human with it. And I think if you like The Green Mile, that story we discussed, The Woman in the Room, would definitely be up your alley because it, it taps into a lot of things that really, really has an adult I gravitate towards more than I did as a teenager reading it in our French class, Adam. Yeah, I'm glad that that's how this ends for you, but we're done with King for the year. This is our final King set of retrospectives before we end the year. The next year will be spent on this book. We're going to sprinkle a lot of things in between, and me and Matt will discuss what exactly we'll get next year. We're really excited for next year. But I think a lot of the excitement is going to be tampered by some of the movies we discuss next year. Although some of them, like Maximum Overdrive, I'm really looking forward to. Matt, what about you? As somebody who you know has just read this book of short stories, are you looking forward to anything we're going to discuss next year? Move Maximum Overdrive, because that is something I've been wanting to talk about for years. There's not a whole lot that I could say I am looking forward to re- uh, re-watching, but... I think some of them will make up for good conversation. And by the end of next year, we still won't be done. There is still one big piece that will bleed over into 2024. But we are taking a bit of a break because we're dropping this on December 16th. And we should probably mention what we're doing next. Well, we will. But I want to go to Adam next. Adam, are you looking forward to anything we're going to be discussing next year? Or should we wait till you get the book before we... Before I ask you that question. <laughs> Looking through it now, and I'd have to check our schedule. I got it saved here. But I'm, if there's one story in here that I'm looking forward to discussing, it'll be The Lawnmower Man. Oh, God. Another just deep, detailed discussion. I, I can't wait for that because that's the one thing that got King to lawyer up. <laughs> Other than that, I might be more interested in just subscribing to Penthouse since most of these were published in there. That mm-hmm. might be a more enjoyable <laughs> An enjoyable experience, really, if you look at those pages. So next week, we're going to do something that, Adam, if Harry Potter was Matt's big passion, and this is my big passion, Adam, would it be safe to say that Avatar is one of yours, and as hard as you fought to get us going on this Avatar retrospective, would you say this is one of your top three asking prices of being a part of this site? At least for what we've discussed this year, Absolutely big fan of Avatar, that first film. I say that unironically. Watched it in theaters with the family. Blown away by it. I've seen it multiple times since, including the extended version, which will probably be the version I watch for our discussion. I think the world of Avatar at Disney World is an amazing experience to visit. I have the puppeted Banshee that you could purchase. I have one of those sitting on my toy shelf with other ones. Our Banshee Sigourney, as we've named her. So, yeah, I got no problem saying that I'm going into Avatar as a fan. And absolutely, it's going to be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. And when it came to finally getting a sequel, James Cameron doesn't do anything except by his schedule when we were able to get one of those and say, hey, it's actually coming out. we got to do these together. And to do something on that level for like a week of release as close as possible, that made me excited as well that we could get it so close to release date. All right, Matthew. What about you, sir? Avatar fan of? You, have you seen it since it was in theaters? I know you probably saw it in theaters. I saw it in theaters and have not seen it since. It has been 
over a decade, not to preview my thoughts. Hate is a strong word, and I don't love it. I thought it was a great theatrical experience, but when I left the theater, I said, I don't know if I would ever imagine, and you can ask 16-year-old me this, which be prepared if you ever have that conversation, because that was, that was quite a sight to behold or someone to hold a conversation with. I remember saying, I can't imagine this for me having the same pageantry on my television as I would in a theater. Mm -hmm. And I was not someone to make the pot shots about Dances with Smurfs or The Last Cat Guitar. <laughs> you know, that, those, that one did. Yeah, those <laughs> things. I was not making those jokes, but as someone who has a seething hatred for the acting talents of Sam Worthington, oh. you could not pay me enough to have a car. If I saw him at a coffee shop, I would take my latte, pour it down his throat, and say, show me how to act. Because this man made Paul Walker look like Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> well, to preview my thoughts, I fall a lot in the same line as Matt, although I will say that I did see this in theaters, I think two or three times, and had a glorious experience. One in IMAX, a couple times in that set of theaters that tried to be IMAX but really weren't. Uh, I guess they call it X XD or whatever. And I had great experiences there. I was really looking forward to buying the and I met, and I know Adam remembers this. They had the storybook release of the Blu-ray set that had those extra scenes mm -hmm. that you speak of. I went. I bought that the very next Christmas. Me and my girlfriend at the time we sat and watched it, and we were like, you know, this wasn't as good as theaters. So I have not revisited it since 2010. And I think it's going to be a different experience as we are looking at this as reviewers, not necessarily just as moviegoers. And I, I will say it's the, these trailers for this new one really get me interested. And I'm glad that we're doing it because it coincides with the release of a sequel to the biggest movie of all time, pretty much. And I think it's mm -hmm. good that we're doing it. But I, I am I'm on pins and needles about whether or not I will enjoy the movie as much as I did in theaters. There's going to be a discussion to be had about you have something like this, and we saw it with Titanic, where you have a movie become the biggest film of all time, and then a few years later is derided by all the people that made it the biggest film of all time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. It, it, it comes in handy. It, it just comes with the territory when it when it comes to Cameron, you know. You know and when, um, it, when it comes to him, like I got, believe me, I got my reservations about Avatar two. That's not just a joke on reservation and Pocahontas <laughs> parallels, but when oh it comes down God. to it, there, <laughs> there, there is one filmmaker that I would never bet against, even less, I would bet against him less than Steven Spielberg, and that man is James Cameron. Mm. When it comes down to it, the man showcases cinema. And that is a discussion to be had next week, but boys, I am so glad that we have returned to Stephen King, even if it wasn't as glowing as I was hoping it would be. More to come next year. Got the schedule. I cannot wait to uh, release that schedule. I think we might release that, what, Matt, when we discuss Avatar 2, maybe? Yeah, because that'll be the last show of the year. We can talk about the heavy hitters that we've got coming up, because mm. this is... And I say this as someone who, you know, I've worked with you for a decade at this point, which, oh my God. Yeah, um, yeah and, and we're still alive and we still talk to each other on a daily basis. Yeah. you, you got to get yourself to Quitters Inc. for that. <laughs> oh yeah, because it worked so well for you. Valid <laughs> <laughs> point. But um, this is the most prestigious group of movies we have ever talked about as far as notoriety, 
the people associated with it, the cultural impacts. And we got it all. We got horror, we got Stephen King, we got all kinds of things that we will really unveil, including one that people always ask, how come you haven't done X? Yep. Yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about there. And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that now we're on our own platform and all the support we get from people who send us messages and emails and things and really enjoy what we're doing. That's what pushes us. And uh, when Matt made this schedule, I looked at this next year and you're right. We have a whole bunch. We have Disney on the on the platform. I mean, there are so many things coming out next year that I am super excited for. And a lot of that has to do with the fact of the support that we've gotten. And, uh, you know, we could not do this massive undertaking of all this king, not to mention all the other things we're going to be doing without everybody who listens. So we appreciate all the support that we can get. But that'll close out Tatai until next week when we go to Pandora. Watch out for us. We are pure evil. We are the three men in a retrospective podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Cam. I promise you three things. You have your car, clean, you have the money, and of course, you have my wife. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. I think I'm crying. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Maybe I'll be better tomorrow. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. Oh, sure. Sure, I remember. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett... Matt, Adam, and Nathan. There's a bear shit in the woods. <laughs> Edited by Garrett. Oh, that's bullshit. Voiceover by Adam. We'll make some time, goddammit. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. You think it's going to make a difference? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. We have a great deal to talk about, Mr. Billings. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk some more. 
but I think after we finish the Sopranos, we're going to do the Sopranos next. We might dive into the Gotham after, because I think I saw, like, half of the pilot, and I turned it the fuck off, and she loves Gotham. You've so. got to get through some shit at first. It's kind of like Smallville, where it starts off really rocky, mm-hmm. and they realize, okay, this is what this show should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once they go, you know what, fuck it, it gets really good. <laughs> and the part where they go fuck it mode when it comes to canon and just say, yep. we're going to be our own thing, because... Yep. Let's give them a reason. We're going to make them cancel us. Oh, they didn't? Go crazier. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like, it's like they called their bluff, and they're like, oh, shit, we have to keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'm going to get, get through Smallville by listening to Welling and Rosenbaum, not by watching <laughs> Okay. I got my notes, the cat's eye notes up. Let's see here. Yeah, I got them all up here. Got my notes. Okay. Mine are on a yellow legal pad. So. There you go, lucky bastard. Oh, you wrote oh, them all down. Working no podcasting. Yeah, I, I wrote mine down. <laughs> <laughs> he's tr- he's right. It, it's weird when every time I go to a movie, like everybody's so focused on all their goddamn food that they're not really paying attention to the movie, you know. And and nowadays when you have phones and whatnot, it's uh, it makes it even worse. In his defense. The sound of people devouring popcorn and going through their box of Whoppers is a considerably higher volume than Clive Barker's speaking voice. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll discuss that when we get into Nightbreed and Hellraiser. All right, so we open on a close-up on what else? Uh, Adam, do you have anything to say before we get into the movie, or you you good? Uh, um, Nope. Other than if okay. Clyde Barker thinks he's going to take my popcorn away, we're going to have a discussion. Now, what woke me up, and I guess turned my frown upside down, was how this thing is dispatched. I love it, too. <laughs> it's great. Because we're once again bringing, uh, we'll be watching, we'll once again bring, what's the name of the song? God damn it. I'll be watching you. Every Breath You Take. Every Breath You Take, yeah. 